Folks want to have this conversation right now. And I think that that's the moment when critics like Hua are stepping up, when we as writers can step up into this kind of a gap. I'm Scott Saul, and welcome to a special Art of Writing edition of Chapter and Verse. It's no secret that our country lately has been rocked by a resurgent white nationalism, which has taken human form in the chest-thumping duo of Donald Trump and his close advisor, Steve Bannon. On today's show, we'll be talking with two writers, Jeff Chang and Hua Su, who have been among the most lucid and sane guides to the world we live in. The world of Trump, yes, but also the world of Black Lives Matter and Beyonce, the world of the activists and artists who, in the words of Chang, have colorized America. In a change of pace for us, our show today comes from a recording of a live event, a conversation last October at UC Berkeley with Jeff Chang and Hua Su. The two go well together. Both Chang and Su are Cal grads, Chang from the mid-80s, Su from the mid-90s. Both have written about the music of the underground as well as the music of the mainstream, and about the political stories that never make it into the spin cycle of cable news, as well as the stories that dominate it. Chang is the author of Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation, of Who We Be, A Cultural History of Post-Civil Rights America, and most recently of We Gonna Be Alright, Notes on Race and Resegregation. Hwasu has written luminously for Grantland, Slate, and most recently, The New Yorker, to which he contributes, thankfully, on a prolific basis. An associate professor of English at Vassar, Su has also just published A Floating Chinaman, Fantasy and Failure Across the Pacific. The event with Su and Chang in October was packed, 160 people filling every seat on the ground floor and balcony of Doe Library's Morrison Room. Since it was sponsored by UC Berkeley's Art of Writing program, we began by focusing on particular passages that Su and Chang had written so that the audience could hear their voice as writers and also hear about their process. Let's hear what Hua Su said about a piece he wrote for The New Yorker on the history of white identity politics. So this is the end of a piece I published, I don't know, like a couple months ago. And it was a review of three new books on um, sort of whiteness and the American imagination. So white people interested in exploring this re- refashioned identity are realizing what people with allegedly minority presence long ago discovered, that these categories are more often than not placeholders, spaces evacuated meaning, where the expectations that come with being told who you are rub up against the aspiration to figure out what you might become. The question is whether whiteness, having arisen from a set of privileges accrued and institutionalized over centuries, can ever truly become a minority category, even if white people become a numerical minority. Whiteness was once described as invisible, a conspiracy that could never be brought into focus, but we can now at least contemplate the possibility that white might become a color like all the rest. This is what it would mean to enter into history rather than simply bending it to your will. That's a great last line. And and you've mentioned (laughs) Uh, that you, to me, over email, that you care a lot about opening and closing lines. How did this passage get shaped, maybe in dialogue with your editor, and how did you come to that last line? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty obsessive about the, the first and last line of everything I write. I have this terrible habit of, like, when I think of the first line, I think that I'm 80% done with something, and then I procrastinate for the next 11 hours, and then I'm up at (laughs) four in the morning, I realize that I still have like 1,700 words to write. But it's really important for me to figure out where a piece begins and ends. 
the reason I picked this isn't because I like love the paragraph or anything, but it was a piece that took a, a lot of negotiation with my editor. And I think that's something that you rarely experience nowadays uh, when you're, even, in, even if you're, you're working as a journalist, it's, it's rare to find editors who are as hands-on as this editor was. And I think part of it was just the delicacy of dealing with the subject matter. And also, I think for myself, there was the matter of where I would enter into the piece. I don't actually enter into the piece in the first person, but I did sort of intentionally use uh, you twice. And one of them was sort of me, and then the other one was sort of directed more at a general reader. And whether or not anyone picked up on that, I didn't really want to force the point. But that was something that we really negotiated back and forth a lot about, sort of the use of pronouns and who was being addressed in the last line. And this was also, I should also say, this is a piece where I had, I had exchanged about 2,000 words and emails with my editor before I even wrote the first word of the piece, which was really unusual. And it really helped um, corral something that could have easily kind of spooled into an uncontrollable mess. So maybe it is a mess, but. Not at all. <laughs> it's a great piece. I'm, I'm curious how much the fact that the New Yorker's readership is kind of like a you know, fairly affluent, sure. largely white. Yeah. How that played into, you know, you, your sense of audience, your sense of how you wanted to intervene and write this piece. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right about the perceived readership of the ma and probably the actual readership of the magazine. Um, so is this too, this isn't too like inside baseball to talk about readership and is this what it's people want to hear? Writing. Okay. Want, <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, so right. I think I think what I didn't want to do was just to um, um, caricature or lampoon the the sort of working class subjects of two of the three books, because I think it's very easy for a publication like the New Yorker or sort of publications of that strata to descend into caricature. So it was sort of important for me to recognize that that was. That was sort of the, the spirit that people might enter into the piece with, right? That we were just sort of going to identify this thing if only to neutralize it by making fun of it or by condescending to it. So I think that there was a lot of work that went into the piece. I mean, this is 300 words out of a 6,000-word piece. Um, and there were a lot of moments where I just wanted to be really careful that no reader would feel too comfortable in the observations, or no reader would feel sort of not somewhat complicit in, in what was being described. What I am impressed by, is just to put it out there, is how it manages to both be very pungent, but not accusatory. You know? And that balance is, is uh, not the easiest thing to achieve. Well, maybe it would help to contextualize. The piece begins, uh, like many pages earlier, with um, this really famous photograph uh, from the um, this, this um, sort of desegregation photograph of, of, uh, of that, that ended up winning many awards and became sort of this placeholder for how, many, for how people understood notions of white rage during the civil rights era. So that initial photograph was one in which uh, a lot of people across the country saw this sort of young, angry white woman yelling, um, sort of yelling obscenities at a black woman who's going to school. And it became this source of great empathy, right? A lot of people saw it and sort of 
tried to relate to it. And so I think I was trying to trouble that sense that we could just sort of slide into you know, empathizing or just sort of thinking as though we had resolved things merely by kind of feeling better about our present. Let's hold on to that sure, yeah. question, that kind of in-betweenness. Because I think it might be a good segue to look at a piece that Jeff wrote, a passage from your recent book, a chapter called The In-Betweens. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just situate this chapter, what you're trying to do in it, where it fits in the larger book, and we'll talk about this passage. Sure. Um, so first of all, my heart's kind of beating through my chest right now because I just remember this was my favorite room when I came to Cal. I would spend a lot of time in here listening to records and just reading books and generally avoiding homework. Um, and, and so just to be back is, I mean, I still live in Berkeley. I know I work at Stanford, but all of you should feel happy that I'm actually making my students read three or four times as much as I would make you read if I was teaching here <laughs> as a way of getting back at them. So um, I'm getting it in for the bears. <laughs> the, the, I, I could just get lost in nostalgia land right now. Um, the we'll, book, we'll go there later. Yeah. We'll go there later. Uh, the book is um, sort of, it's, it's called We Gonna Be Alright, Notes on Recent, uh, Race and Resegregation. And it's, um, it was built around these two essays that form the, the middle of the book um, about Ferguson and about resegregation as the, the frame to kind of understand the current sort of ways in which we can see race um, collectively. Uh, Who We Be was about how we see race uh, individually, um, and it led me to, to kind of a lot of the questions that I further unpack in this book. It was meant to be a, a thank you note in, in so many ways to the Movement for Black Lives uh, for being able to push these issues that, we've, that we as a nation have so skillfully sometimes avoided um, for the last uh, five decades, and certainly uh, even during this Obama presidency. Um, and in doing that, um, I knew that I had to do an essay that would explore my own kind of personal positionality, as Ron Takaki um, used to put it. Um, uh, as a Chinese and native Hawaiian uh, person who grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. So this essay is the second to the last essay. It's called The In-Betweens. And it's about Asian Americanness um, and trying to explore this weird kind of place that, that we occupy between blackness and whiteness, uh, between sort of complicity and freedom. Um, and, and it was a very difficult essay to write. And this is, uh, um, actually you selected a part of the, the essay that means a lot to me, but which hasn't necessarily been talked about too much amongst folks. So. You want me to read it? It's yeah, read tell, it to people. Yeah. Tell along. It's Everybody long. read it already while I was droning on, <laughs> no, right? That's good. Okay, it so. has a kind of rhythm to it that I want to hear out loud. All right. um, uh, <clears throat> okay. The category of Asian American sprawls, six-generation toddlers and undocumented teens, crazy rich coeds chilling on Rodeo Drive or in Singapore Air first class, and couples on public assistance packing their meager belongings under eviction notices. Architects and oncologists, nannies and bus drivers, seamstresses and factory bosses, class divisions that reflect the displacements of the Cold War and congressional preferences for the not so tired and not so poor. Innumerable histories colliding even in a single family. Yet here you are, 
the evidence of American warfare and familial risk and survival, making yourselves through panethnic coupling and an emergent culture of image, story, song, food, a tiger clan, a model fucking minority, a blueprint for multicultural democracy. Sorry, I, I, trigger warning, I just swear. Um, <laughs> you too are the exception and the exceptional. When you are summoned, you too may teach the rest of the world exactly how to get along. What does it mean to be the evidence that racism is not real? To be fetishized by colorblind liberals and white supremacists alike? To be so innocuous that teachers and policemen and figures of authority mostly allow you the benefit of the doubt? To be desired for your fluid, exotic, futuristic, yielding difference? What does it mean to be the solution? For you, the Du Boisian question is turned upside down. It haunts you. Um, yeah, so. The Du Boisian question mean, what does it mean to be to the be problem, problem, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned before you read this that this was an important passage to you. It was, so so yeah. maybe if you just dilate on that for a second. Um, the, the, the last part, the, the last question, what does it mean to be a solution? Um, I wrote that line, I think, about 10 years ago or so, maybe longer, when I was asked to um, another moment where my heart was just beating outside of my chest. I got a master's degree uh, in Asian American Studies at UCLA, and I was asked to go in and speak at the graduation. Um, and I was thinking a lot about, the, uh, about it at the time um, of, of what it meant uh, for, for us to be getting degrees from elite universities um, and to be, at the same time, wanting to go out and change the world. Um, and the kind of um, privileges that many of us brought in are, are the privileges that certainly many of us are going to walk out into. Um, and I think that that made me uh, think a lot more about uh, the souls of black folk. Um, I was part of the generation that came of age with the Los Angeles riots. And I was in the first class at UCLA uh, that came in after the riots. And so the riots um, colored, I think, uh, pun not intended, but maybe, I don't know, colorized like pretty much everything I've written about and done since from Can't Stop, Won't Stop, all they went through. Um, and so, you know, this particular um, paragraph was to try to talk about how difficult it is to kind of summarize um, Asian America, despite the fact that everybody always is, and um, to be able to kind of get at the, the sort of diversity of what's happening um, in that that still boil down to, you know, go back to your own, your own country, uh, like folks are telling Michael Luo or Mi Hua in the street, <laughs> uh, or many of you, right? Um, and and, and to, to try to think about that at the same time that we're thinking about, um, you know, racist love. Um, this notion that uh, Sumi Cho reintroduced to me, like Sumi Cho was a grad student when I was an undergrad here. She's now a law professor at, at DePaul of um, what does it mean to be kind of fetishized, to be put up as a model, um, and, and especially to be done so in, in, uh, in the face of sort of reactionary, um, a, a reactionary way of looking at race um, as sort of a lesson, a taunting lesson to uh, other immigrants and to especially uh, to uh, Native folks and black folks. Um, and so that's sort of where I came to this last part. And it, 
I, I realized, I, I rewrote this and rewrote this because I realized absolutely it's overdrawn. And I can think of a million ways in which, uh, you know, these things are not happening. These questions are, are you know, we're not uh, innocuous. Um, my brother has been racially profiled by police, um, even though my mom worked for the police in Hawaii. And, um, uh, and it happens all the time to my cousins, my family, my friends. Um, but I realized that I needed to kind of write it from that sort of extreme in this particular paragraph in order to make the case. Yeah. Well, one thing I really love about it is that, you know, just as like a social movement raises new questions that people have to address, opens up a conversation. I feel like that's really what this passage does for me, is that it kind of paints a broader canvas of all, the, all this complexity and then ends with a series of questions that are left kind of hanging in the air. And the point is not necessarily to answer them because there, many of them are almost unanswerable, um, but to force um, other people reading your book to, to wrestle with them. Yeah, and the piece in the, the sort of part in the essay uh, that kind of people most pick up on is the um, sort of the, the intra-Asian American uh, ideological battles. Um, and I think that here's kind of where I took a cue from, from Hua is that it was much more important for me in this particular essay to explore the ambivalences than it was to kind of explicitly state what, what my political position is, um, although I do, um, but to kind of interrogate and allow the other side to maybe have um, a position in order to, to uh, well, I mean, partly to, to, to be able to um, get at this question of diversity in, in Asian American communities, but also to be able to reinforce, I think, my own kind of moral and ethical position um, about how Asian Americans um, should address being in between. Um, and that's obviously not to land on the side of complicity, but to land on the side of liberation. This is a big question, but how do you think Berkeley shaped you as a writer to be the kind of writer who would both be on one hand, um, I think you take on very big political questions, but you also explore them, I think, in a way that feels open. I think just at a very general level, um, Berkeley is, was, at least when I was a student, it was, it was a place where you had your lessons in the classroom, and then you had sort of the lessons outside the classroom. And you were always responsible, not necessarily for squaring the two, but for thinking about those connections and the frictions, you know? So um, I ended up very randomly being a political science major. I minored in Asian American studies. And I was always thinking about the sort of practical applications or just sort of what a lot of these ideas looked like in, in real life. And I know that sounds kind of banal and basic and that's sort of the point of college, but you know, like I teach at a college now and I, I don't think that's necessarily baked into everyone's college experience. Uh, and I think that that, that... that these conversations matter and that you're dealing with these kind of things that are rippling onto the campus. Yeah, not just that they matter, but that there are places right down the street where you can think through these ideas and sort of act on them and embody them. Um, so I know when I was a student, I was really interested in writing. Like I made my own zine that I would sell at sort of bookstores that are no longer here, but 
Um, but I was also doing sort of like activist work or sort of mentorship work. And I feel like that, even though that didn't help, that wasn't something that forced me to think about the craft of writing. It made me feel as though I never wanted anyone to, I never wanted to address just a single audience. Like I wanted, I wanted as many people as possible to read what I was writing. And maybe my parents don't feel as though they're, they're the audience for what I write, but um, I think as an academic, but also as someone who writes journalism, like I've always wanted to just toggle between registers or just to um, sort of mediate between different worlds of ideas and sort of action or art. So I think that was something that I tried to embody as a student, and then that's sort of a sensibility I take to writing. Does that make any sense yeah, at all? What, what were the different <laughs> audiences that you had like imagined, you know, when you were writing those things on campus, trying to bring them together or have have a create a conversation where one wasn't existing before? Um, I well, I mean, this might be way too specific, but I think the things I was learning in this political theory class I took with the great late the late great Michael Rogan, a lot of those things were really in conversation with stuff I was taking in ethnic studies classes, but these weren't necessarily, um, but they were completely different kids in these two classes. And so uh, I was, that really intrigued me and sort of like how certain knowledge becomes, um, seems more legitimate in a certain setting than others. So I think that was a really formative experience. Um, yeah, I think it was yeah, stuff like that. that's a good example where, you know, political science, I think probably, has a lot more power institutionally here. Yeah, definitely. You know, and yet it could really benefit from the kind of questions being asked in Asian American studies. Yeah. Advice. Jeff, you want to give a tackle that question? I, I just sort of remember, um, you know, I, I uh, went to a smallish kind of school in Hawaii and I came here and Berkeley was so sprawling um, and everybody seemed to know so much more than I did. Um, and, and I felt like uh, it, I was basically in the deep end and I was swimming. Um, but what really helped was I was able to find communities of folks uh, very quickly. And the thing that I will always value about Berkeley is the, actually the intensity <laughs> of, of Berkeley folks, period. And you're not referring to Stanford. I, I'm, I'm sure not referring to, well, actually, Stanford has, Stanford is, is very, a very intellectual school. And this is no knock on Stanford. I think that Stanford folks would feel the same way. But Stanford is a much smaller school. And there's uh, much more of a prevailing sense of collegiality. And you sort of don't stir the waters and that kind of thing. Um, or if you do, you do it in a very kind of, you know, gentle kind of yeah. way. You can, but disrupt, Berkeley, you can yeah. disrupt entrepreneurially. Yeah, not the, the disruption is a big word, but, but this, is, this, was, this place was disrupted to me like every half hour. Um, <laughs> you know, from, from like whatever, from, you know, like uh, Andwinell, like seeing Smokey, like doing his stand-up comedy to um, whatever rally was on Sprawl that day to going back to the dorm and getting into an argument about El Salvador. Like, there was, there was, it was always disruptive. And the intensity that folks always brought, I will always value and I've always sought, actually, through life. Um, I've always tried to find, I've always tried to duplicate that kind of sense of, of community. We were just talking about this earlier. We, um, Hua and I were part of this online community that we started in the late 90s of music journalists and music critics and just going back on it, it was like, 
I was joking. I was like, yeah, you know, we had this group. It's called Soundings. We kind of changed the world. And then Hua goes, we really did change the world. And if we thought about it a little bit more, like Hua was going down the list of the folks who were in this crew, this little email listserv thing. And we, we were like, yeah, it included two MacArthur geniuses, you know, Josh Kuhn and Ta-Nehisi Coates. It included Hua. It included, uh, you know, uh, John Caramonica. It included, like, Julianne. Shepard, it included Jessica Hopper, it included Oliver Wong, it included all of these folks who like, and we were always intensely fighting things out and I've always tried to seek that out. Um, so in that way, that's always gonna be an indelible part of, of who I am. Switch to talk a little about music because both you guys are so accomplished as uh, music journal writer, writers about music. It's hard to write about music, and arguably, writing about music has changed a lot. What challenges do you face now writing about music, kind of in the age of streaming? How is it different than what it was like to be writing about music in the in the nineties? <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge question. Um, I feel like it's obviously a lot faster. Um, it's really pretty impossible for a general music critic like me, uh, who's responsible for writing about all sorts of genres, to keep up with just how rapidly things change. Uh, also, I don't know how many people here actually buy music still, but you don't really need we could, we, to. We could do a survey. Who here has bought a particular CD? Or download. Or download, yeah, over the last month. It's oh, impressive. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I asked you old folks. <laughs> I asked one of my uh, post young, post young folks. <laughs> post not, young, not old, post young. I asked a student, uh, a first year student of mine, what the last album she bought was. She said, well, I don't actually listen to albums unless they're assigned to me at school. And I thought that's really that that's really amazing. Personally, I'm more interested in these questions, like what does it mean now that music is packaged with other things, or what does it mean that um, you know, like I think one of the most interesting questions about music now isn't necessarily about styles or genres. It's it's what it means that we no longer have um, the the headphone jack in an iPhone. You know, and what it means that the the that the former captains of the music industry, someone like Jimmy Iovine, who discovered you know like Dr. Dre, Eminem, everything, and that whole pyramid scheme, um, he's now in charge of Apple Music selling us headphones. So, so what does that transition mean in terms of technology and sort of changing relationships to music? Um, and that's, that's stuff that still interests me. Um, it's harder now to kind of find a new artist and champion them in a way I think. It, like music, what John Landau did for Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, exactly. I think you still, as a critic, you, you kind of want to understand why something new is exciting people, but you're no longer, like, I don't think the rise of, like, Little Yachty had anything to do with, like, music writers saying, this guy is important. I just, you know, I, for, for me, in terms of writing about music, I worry that some of the, some of the art, of, uh, art of it is gone um, because of the um, lack of venues that are paying for it. Um, I think that, that part of the reason that we uh, lived through, I think, a, a very privileged era was that, you know, the music industry, and again, Soundings is, in, is happening in the late 90s. This is the peak of the music industry, like billions of dollars, insane junkets to Jamaica all the time, you know? 
um, are happening, and we're uh, we're kind of in all of this. But there's a whole infrastructure uh, cross generationally where folks were were getting training in really good writing. So both Juan and I have been like uh, mentored by some of the best in the business. Um, Bob Criscow uh, is not only the the sort of one of the greatest writers ever to have lived, he's also the best line editor that I've ever had in my life. Um, and just that kind of attention to detail, when everybody's getting paid, everybody has a job to do, everybody has a slot to fill, um, you just, you have to improve. Um, and I've, I worry that because that's gone now, that there are no longer the kinds of structures to be able to, to uh, to make that work. Um, so I've tried in my own little ways to, to build up different kinds of spaces uh, you know, with my students um, and to try to give them the intense line editing, to try to like, work with them on conceptualization around pieces, to pull out big ideas, uh, those kinds of things. Um, but it's not like the universities can replace like this intense music journalism structure of people from the age of, I don't want to guess how old Chris Gow is, um, all the way on down to the 20-year-old, but like at least 40 years of, of folks in between helping each other, pushing each other along, um, having these intense forums where they're arguing all the time, um, all of those kinds of things. That's what I worry about, um, not being there anymore. Uh, for me... Because kind of the neoliberal gutting of newsrooms and other magazines has made it so the incentives is to create neoliberalism. Well, no. you know, yeah, I think neoliberalism, absolutely. But I think just also the idiocy of the record industry, which yeah. we could talk about for hours, you know. Um, and uh, you can never really underestimate how dumb the record industry is, um, I, I, I think. And, uh, and I think that the record industry killed the record industry. Um, but that's a whole other discussion, I think, for another time. I mean, for me, it's been... It's been, it's been good to be able to, to have, still be part of these types of networks. Uh, we still are able to gather on Facebook. Um, people are still informally swapping drafts and all that kind of thing. I yearn for, um, for, for interaction and engagement with, with people who are you know, under the age of, of 30 to be able to help folks like, understand, explain, and, and move into a place where they're able to talk about things. I think it's happening in fiction, especially now for younger authors of color who are coming up. Um, and, and I think universities have been able to provide spaces for writing workshops to happen around fiction, for instance. But certainly, that hasn't been the case for nonfiction writing. I just want to reiterate something. So Jeff's mentioned this listserv a couple times. And I remember I was, I think, one of the younger people on this listserv. And I felt way more nervous like emailing the listserv than I did as a graduate student in my seminars because they were just sort of names that I really respected in a completely different way. And, but I think what I miss about that era, and I feel like anyone my age will always miss something about when they were like 22, is that it was in private. Like it was a public forum by invitation, but you know we were working a lot of ideas out, a lot of sort of unpopular ideas and it was a community, but it was sort of a bounded community. And that's something I'm sure there are these sort of public-private conversations going on. But I think nowadays, it's a lot easier to just sort of shoot out that first draft. 
and not have um, sort of gone through the ex extreme vetting of your community, you know, to use a term. And also maybe we're also more oriented towards publicity. So it might be a Facebook post with lots of commentary on it, but it doesn't have that same boundedness. Yeah, yeah, and definitely, and no knocks on that approach, because I feel like a lot of really great ideas grow out of that kind of um, sort of brain, public brainstorming, but uh, I do sort of think that the first draft of all the things I do start off in like private G-chats or, you know, just in private conversation, and um, there just aren't as many spaces like that available. to talk a bit about politics. Both of you guys have written well about it. And um, one thing I think that you discuss in, in your book, uh, most recent book, is how the Black Lives Matter movement kind of posed challenges for the media by refusing to have certain hierarchical structures, by kind of being more feminist, queer, in the way that they conceptualize what they're doing. And I'm curious how much you guys think that the media has risen to the challenges that the movement has posed to it. You know, I think about how at the last presidential debate, it's happening six miles from Ferguson, and it basically wasn't talked about at all, mm -hmm. which is striking. Absolutely. I think that, that in a lot of ways, the movement for black lives has transformed, not completely, but in part, the focus of major media outlets. Um, I mean, this is, a, this is a weird counterintuitive example, but it's a perfect example. Uh, the focus on white premature death, I think, is a perfect outgrowth of the questions that the movement for black lives has raised. Um, That's I don't been think attached to the Trump campaign in terms of thinking about no, even the before Trump, this. Before. I'm saying, I'm saying, even before the Trump campaign came out, the New York Times. There was a study that came out a few years ago on the uh, the the rising suicide rate um, amongst white middle class uh, families. Um, particularly among women. Um, and I don't think that that study would have gotten any kind of play, but for the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement has brought into uh, question the entirety of this notion of life expectancy and premature death. Um, and, and so it's counterintuitive in some ways, but in, in other ways it's sort of a perfect example of how the media moves towards a race conversation and then digresses in other directions. So I feel like it's always easier to, for another example, another example is this current campus debate around trigger warnings and safe spaces. I was just at the University of Chicago last week. This is a debate that starts because students are walking out in protests on over 100 campuses across the US to protest the lack of diversity amongst faculty, staff, lack of uh, mental health professionals of color, um, lack of the kinds of infrastructures that we were asking for when we were students. And, and I was a student in the 80s and you were students in the 90s. Right, and going back to the late 60s. Yeah. And, and 50 years later, here we are. Same demands, same types of things, and the, the media uh, diverts or digresses this kind of conversation into a conversation about, oh, these students are suppressing free speech um, and freedom of expression. Um, and so I think that that's, that's, those are two kinds of ways in which um, the media has not met the challenge that's been posed by the Movement for Black Lives. Um, that it's been able to 
push us back into these sort of old familiar culture war types of arguments. I mean, that whole freedom of expression thing was happening when I was here. That was part of what I was, what I was sitting in Morrison Library to avoid, you know, it was like, oh my God, I can't deal with this, all this noise. Let me put on this rare Thelonious Monk <laughs> album, right? To kind of get away from this type of crap. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that that's part of, of, of what, the, what we need to be able to do to push, to continue to push the media around these types of questions. I think, though, that the media has done, uh, for instance, if, uh, a, a good job in other respects. For instance, The Guardian um, has a whole uh, special ongoing thing called The Counted on its website, um, theguardian.com. Um, the Washington Post, um, in some ways, has forced, and The Guardian in that way, have forced um, uh, the, the FBI to start looking at collecting uh, these kinds of uh, uh, pieces of data around policing incidents. Um, and so it's happening in some kinds of ways. And I think, too, that the, the, the din around questions of resegregation um, is rising, thanks to the hard work of people like at, at The Atlantic, at City Lab, mm -hmm. who have been kind of pursuing this, and dogged reporters like Nicole Hannah-Jones um, and Wesley Lowry, who are out there who are doing the work. Um, and, and who have been like pushed into uh, spaces of, of, I mean, Nicole, when she was doing the work back in 2012, um, went to ProPublica to do it, right? And then the New York Times brought her on to say, we need you to be able to do what you did there uh, for us. And now we've got, I think, a resurgent kind of conversation about questions of, of resegregation. So it's moving in both directions at the same time. Well, you wanna yeah, I, I think it's put a lot of stress on how cultural critics think about popular culture as well. Um, like earlier when I was talking about how it's difficult now to view, purely view yourself as a consumer guide telling people thumbs up or thumbs down, um, you know, that question is pretty irrelevant when a lot of music <laughs> that's sort of made in the shadow of Black Lives Matter is so meaningful and so important and, so, and becomes sort of an organizing tool. Um, so, I mean, just personally, I've spent a lot of this year writing about pieces of music that sort of question the limits of empathy, the question, question the limits of um, sort of packaging protest into song form, wondering sort of what it means. Like, uh, you know, the Kendrick Lamar album from last year was very much resistant to uh, the market. You know, I mean, it was it was popular and successful, but it also Hard to felt digest. yeah, it felt like a a very thoroughgoing attempt to say, like if this isn't meant to sell, um, which you know, like an artist have always done that, but I think that becomes a really interesting question at a time when um, uh, sort of racial politics can be so e easily absorbed into the market. Mm -hmm. So you know, an album like that, an album like um, Anoni's record earlier this year, which is sort of this climate change dance record. Uh, I just find these, I just find that the music is forcing me to ask different questions as a critic. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, I would have thought, isn't it beautiful that a sort of multicultural cast of listeners can rally around this piece of music? Now I sort of sometimes wonder, is that, what do we do now? Like, is, is that, that, is that is. sort of all there is? Um, is that sort of the point of this song? Um, I don't necessarily have answers, but just sort of a new set of questions. I think the moment is, is um, sort of 
placing stress on the act of criticism. Yeah. Can I, well, I think add to that? Sure. Actually, just to, just to kind of build out um, Paul's point, I mean, these are, these are albums like Kendrick Lamar's album and more recently Solange's album, um, where, and then Beyonce's album before that, where um, they wouldn't have been ready for the marketplace in 2012. Um, people, like their companies, I'm sure, would have been like, what are you doing? But all of those albums went number one and stayed there. And, and I just think that it speaks to um, the fact that folks want to have this conversation right now. Um, and I think that that's the moment when, when critics like Hua are stepping up, when you know, we as writers can step up into this kind of a gap. Um, and I think that you know, I've often said that cultural change precedes political change. I feel like what's happening now is that the, the Black Lives Matter movement has kind of brought that dialectic back around so that it's made it possible for all of these artists to be able to explore these questions in a, in a really deep kind of a way and in, in really new sonically interesting kinds of ways. And that in turn is inspiring, uh, as Hua just described, us as, as writers to, to, to kind of step our games up as well to try to respond to that too. We want to think about these artists as kind of opening up problems, just as you were doing with those rhetorical questions. I mean, on, on the one hand, there's the, the protest aspect of the music, sure. which is to say some things are very clear. Premature black death by the state, at the hands of the state, at the hands of the healthcare system, at the hands of the prison industrial complex, all these things are pretty clear. But then there's a world of complexity that stands within those problems. What do you think is going on? You know, it's, what are some of the more complex things that they're, these art, wave of artists are forcing us to go into? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very general. Uh, I think I think the beauty of pop music for me or popular culture is that it's always about a relationship to the world, right? It's about an artist figuring out their relationship to the world. It's about the listener figuring out where they fit in that world, and that can be really kind of dreamy and utopian. And when it's not, you have to want, you, you end up wondering, like, why isn't it so? Like, what is, what is being described such that this relationship to the world is, uh, is very dark or it's something that should remain undigested? Uh, I think as a critic, sometimes I think it doesn't really matter what I have to say about things, particularly when it comes to someone like Beyonce, right? Like, it doesn't really matter if I think her album is good or not. It's important, you know? And I think it's more interesting for me to think about the importance and sort of how more people use the term intersectionality now, or more people um, sort of have um, sort of um, learn about books to read or, 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 I, or arguments to make that spin out of that album than it is for me to kind of figure out whether I think it's good or not. Does that make sense? And that's a different kind of relationship to the world and to the art that I'm, I'm sort of discovering. Yeah. But it's less about personal taste and more about like, well, what, what is this thing? What is this work of art? And how does it ask to be explored? Yeah. So I think when I was, um, when I was a student, I, I, like a transformative moment for me was reading the critic Grail Marcus. Uh, who uh, came to my History 7B class and gave this really wonderful lecture. And uh, I don't 
necessarily like everything that he writes about, but he would always convince me why something mattered or why, why something had to be created in that moment. And that's sort of the question that I think the current moment um, sort, of, um, sort of raises again. Like, why are these things being created? And I think at, the, at its most modest level, that's all I can hope that my criticism does, is help someone think about, when I wrote about the Kendrick Lamar album, I wrote about it alongside this incredible novel by Paul Beatty called The Sellout. And my only intervention was just to say, if you're into this album, read this book. Um, usually, music critics, we review albums in tandem, but it was sort of like, no, there's something, there's something bigger going on here. I, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I know what that thing is, mm -hmm. but both of these artists are touching on what Beatty referred to in his book as this notion of <laughs> unmitigated blackness, like a blackness that was insoluble to commercialization. So, I mean, I, mean, I think as a, as a critic, that's all, that's all I, I can do is offer these juxtapositions and say, here's, here's, here's a way of thinking about why this thing exists. Yeah, I really relate to that. I mean, I think part of our job is to be the dot connectors and to yeah. kind of explore the intertextuality of, of things um, in, in ways that kind of help to illuminate the current moment. Because we're always, I mean, the thing about, that's the thing about criticism is that the criticism is, of course, happening. It's, 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 it's implicated in, in context. You're, it's happening in the moment, right? So um, in a way our job is actually just to be able to capture that moment, um, to be the photographer that's capturing that moment. So yeah, so I was thinking about your essay there, and what I was trying to do with the Lemonade essay in, in um, We Gonna Be All Right is to connect, was to connect Beyonce to what Carrie Mae Weems was doing and to what the late great Grace Lee Boggs was talking about as well, as well as Robin Kelly. Um, and other folks, Brittany Cooper, so an artist, um, uh, uh, an organizer, a philosopher, um, every person, uh, Grace Lee Boggs, and then a, you know, a number of public intellectuals. Um, and to think about Lemonade offering, like if you read it in this way, uh, a sort of narrative of transformative justice, which is, is uh, kind of crazy and mind-boggling and maybe a huge leap to make, but that's part of the job that we have to do, I think as critic, is to be able to say, hey, actually, maybe this is going on with this. And then our readers will say, oh, you're crazy. You know, it's just about her and Jay-Z, um, you know, or, or whatever, you know, but to be able to kind of like draw these kinds of threads out that, that maybe help, help to uh, spawn more discussion um, and maybe deepen those kinds of discussions in different kinds of ways. Yeah. I think you've definitely done that. On that note, let's thank Jeff and Hua. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Scott. Scott. Jeff Chang's book, Who We Be, has a lovely epigraph, which will be our outro for this episode of Chapter and Verse. It comes from a folktale as retold by Subcomandante Marcos, the story of colors. The gods were fighting. And the gods were fighting because the world was very boring, with only two colors to paint it. My wish for 2017 is for a world with less fighting between the gods and many more than two colors to paint it. You can find links to the writings of Jeff Chang and Hua Su on the Chapter and Verse website at chapterversepod.com. 
Thanks also go out to Teresa Kotsarillis, co-producer of Chapter and Verse, and to the UC Berkeley Townsend Center for the Humanities, the Art of Writing Program, the Arts Research Center, and the Arts and Design Initiative at UC Berkeley, which provided funding for the Sue Chang event and for this show. See you in 2017.